Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we'll hear from CKLN board member and programmer Joita Gupta on the heels of a recent CRTC decision to ban that station from the airwaves. We'll also hear from award-winning economics professor and author John Loxley on the priorities and prospects going into the upcoming G20 meeting in Paris. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of February 17, 2011. International Cooperation Minister Bev Oda told Parliament Monday that she was the person who directed that a recommendation from her staff be altered to deny funding to church-based aid group Kairos. The minister was backtracking on previous statements in which she said Kairos had lost its funding because the group's work no longer fit with the Canadian International Development Agency's objectives. The agency had actually recommended that Kairos should get $7 million, and the fact the document was doctored by the minister drew a strong rebuke from Speaker Peter Milligan. The International Criminal Court's Chief Prosecutor, Luis Moreno Ocampo, is conducting a preliminary examination into human rights abuses committed in Afghanistan by the Taliban and ISAF forces alike. Mr. Ocampo said he will not back down from prosecuting Western governments that are not holding their officials accountable for their actions. According to the ICC, Stephen Harper and Peter McKay may be in breach of Geneva Convention, liable to war crimes charges due to the Afghan prisoner exchange scandal. Between 2006 and 2007, Richard Colvin, the second highest ranking Canadian diplomat in Kabul, sent 17 reports about torture to Ottawa. The reports, which were circulated widely within the Departments of Foreign Affairs and National Defense, confirmed public warnings from international officials and journalists. In March 2006, Louise Arbour, the then UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, reported that complaints of torture at the hands of Afghan officials were common. A Montreal-based social advocacy group is accusing Mohawk College of blocking a lecture by a Jewish-American scholar, Norman Finkelstein, planned for this weekend. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East say the college is demanding the group pay for eight security guards at a cost of $1,500 or have the event with Dr. Finkelstein cancelled. The group is warning it will seek an injunction against Mohawk College. Finkelstein, the son of two Holocaust survivors, has written several books about the Middle East and has taught at Rutgers University. New York University and DePaul University. He is supportive of the Palestinian cause and critical of Israel. Canadians trying to bring their parents and grandparents to Canada from other countries are unhappy with the federal government's decision to cut back on family reunification visas. Numbers obtained from the Citizenship and Immigration Department through the Access to Information Act indicate the government will issue about 11,000 family reunification visas for parents and grandparents overseas next year. That's down from the more than 16,000 issued last year. 
Richard Curlin, the Vancouver-based immigration lawyer who filed the access to information request, said the slashed rate and the 140,000 applicants already in the queue mean a parent could wait 13 years for a visa to Canada if she, he or she were to apply today. Canadian Auto Workers President Ken Luenza says General Motors of Canada should pay Canadian employees about $36 million or the same $4,000 bonus that each of their counterparts will receive in the U.S. Luenza, who represents more than 9,000 GM workers, said that although the union has never renegotiated profit sharing here, it doesn't mean employees should be disregarded when the automaker performs well. The U.S. company confirmed that it expects to give about 45,000 unionized hourly employees profit-sharing checks, averaging at least $4,000 later this month, when it reports fourth quarter and year-end 2010 profits. About 26,000 salaried staff will also re- receive unspecified amounts ranging between 4 and 16% of their regular annual pay. The spirit of rebellion that toppled Hosni Mubarak has swept through Egypt's vast public sector, inspiring workers fed up with meager wages and poor working conditions to take to the streets in protest. From state-owned financial institutions in Cairo to Alexandria's seaport, workers went on strike last week, disrupting operations and forcing the central bank to declare an unscheduled holiday on Monday. Outside a state-owned insurance company just a few meters from Tahrir Square, hundreds of workers were demanding the departure of managers they blame for grievances, such as the enormous gap between high and low-wage earners. In Egypt, there have been reports of protests, sit-ins, and strikes at state-owned institutions including the stock exchange, textile firms, media organizations, steel firms, the postal service and railways, the police, and the health ministry. The workers cite an array of grievances. What unites them is a new sense of being able to speak out in the post-Mubarak era. Egypt's ruling military council called on labor leaders to stop strikes and protests unleashed by the uprising that ousted Hosni Mubarak from the presidency to allow a sense of normalcy to return to the country. A military spokesman read a communique on state television as thousands of state employees, from ambulance drivers to police and transport workers, protested to demand better pay and conditions. The communique said Egypt needed a quieter climate so the military can run the nation's affairs at this critical stage and eventually hand over the reins of power to an elected and civilian administration. The statement also warned that strikes and protests hurt the country's security and economy and gave a chance to irresponsible parties to commit illegal acts. On Sunday, military rulers dissolved the country's parliament and suspended the constitution, two key demands of some of the protesters. The Yemeni government has been accused of violently suppressing anti-government protesters over the past three days. According to Human Rights Watch, security forces used electroshock tasers and batons against the demonstrators. In addition, hundreds of pro-government supporters armed with knives, sticks and assault rifles attacked a peaceful gathering on Friday. Protesters in Yemen are calling for the immediate resignation of President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who has ruled the country for three decades. 
Protests have also spread to Algeria, where police arrested up to 400 demonstrators over the weekend. Earlier today, the Algerian government said it will end its 19-year-old state of emergency within days. U.S. President Barack Obama is sending Congress a $3.73 trillion U.S. spending blueprint that pledges $1.1 trillion in deficit savings over the next decade through spending cuts and tax increases. Obama is projecting the deficit will hit an all-time high of $1.65 trillion this year and then drop sharply to $1.1 trillion in 2012 with an expected improvement in the economy and as reductions in social security withholding and business taxes disappear. Two-thirds of Obama's projected savings will come through spending cuts that include a five-year freeze on many domestic programs. The other one-third of the savings would come from tax increases, including limits on tax deductions for high-income taxpayers. A court in Ecuador has fined U.S. oil giant Chevron a reported $8 billion for polluting a large part of the country's Amazon region. The oil firm Texaco, which merged with Chevron in 2001, was accused of dumping billions of gallons of toxic materials into unlined pits and Amazon rivers. Campaigners say crops were damaged and farm animals killed and that local cancer rates increased. Condemning the ruling as fraudulent, Chevron said it would appeal. The lawsuit was brought on behalf of 30,000 Ecuadorians in a case which dragged on for nearly two decades. The trial began in 2003 after almost a decade of legal battles in the U.S. At that time, a U.S. appeals court ruled that the case should be heard in Ecuador. Hundreds of thousands of Italian women took part in rallies on last Sunday to show their opposition to Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, who was embroiled in an underage prostitution scandal. Protests were organized in more than 200 towns and cities throughout Italy. Last week, prosecutors filed a request to bring Berlusconi to trial, accusing him of paying for sex with a nightclub dancer when she was under 18 years old. Those are the alert headlines for the week of February 17, 2011. Now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of February 17, 2011. Join the B.C. Lower Mainland's community organizations at Reconvergence, a day of workshops, discussions, activities, and information tables, all from an anti-capitalist, anti-colonial, and anti-imperialist perspective. Reconvergence will be held on February 19th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m., at the SFU Harbor Center in Vancouver. Free lunch and snacks will be provided. David McNally will be in Winnipeg on February 24th to launch his new book, Global Slump, The Economics and Politics of Crisis and Resistance. McNally will specifically be discussing the recent revolts in North Africa. This forum will also feature a postal worker speaking on the Canadian Union of Postal Workers' current fight to defend wages, jobs, and working conditions against Canada Post Management. The lecture begins at 7 o'clock p.m. in the Buckwald Room at the Millennium Library. Journalist and host of Democracy Now! Amy Goodman will be in Edmonton on February 26th to celebrate the 14th anniversary of her show and the launch of her book, Breaking the Sound Barrier. She will speak on the role of independent media in promoting social justice. This free talk begins at 7 o'clock p.m. and will be held at the University of Alberta. The 2011 Phyllis Clark Memorial Lecture will feature Professor of Economics at the University of Manitoba, John Loxley. 
Loxley will be discussing the global economic crisis, fiscal restraint, and public-private partnerships. The lecture will be held in the OCHEM Lounge at Ryerson University in Toronto on March 10th and will begin at 7 o'clock p.m. And that's all for Around the Left in 7 Days for the week of February 17th, 2011. KLN, a campus community radio station at Ryerson University, is fighting for its life. In January of this year, the CRTC revoked the station's operating license and directed it to cease operations by February 12th. But a court decision put a hold on the ruling, allowing the station to remain on the air until it's determined whether the CRTC decision can be appealed to the Federal Court of Appeal. So what's really going on at CKLN and why is this happening now? To sort this out for alert listeners, we have contacted Joita Gupta, a board member of the station who also produces one of its programs, Frequency Feminism. Welcome to Alert, Joita. Hi, thanks for having me. First, can you give us a little bit of background? CKLN has been around for a long time. Has there ever been a problem with its license before, or have other campus radio stations had their licenses revoked by the CRTC, or is this something that's unique to CKLN? Well, this decision came as quite a surprise. Um, whenever stations have been in non-compliance with the, uh, with the conditions of their license, as the CRTC alleges CKLN has been, um, the first step has usually been uh, to issue mandatory orders or a suspension. And if you look at the uh, dissent of Commissioner Poirier, one of the uh, commissioners who was um, put on the CRTC, uh, the CKLN case, she makes this point very well. Um, CKLN has, has been around, as you noted, for quite some time. It was granted its license in 1983 and has had close to three decades of successful programming uh, as Toronto's oldest and boldest campus community radio station operating out of Ryerson University. Uh, CKLN has also had a great deal of success in terms of its license renewals. Um, its license was renewed for a seven-year term in 2007 and previously has always received full renewals from the CRTC. So CKLN has been doing really well. It's a, uh, it has remained, and my hope is that it will continue to remain, a fine example and a specimen of what community radio looks like. Well, the station has had a, a rocky few years recently. A couple of years ago, one student faction pulled off kind of a coup, knocking off the station's management and eliminating a lot of programs that might have been described as more radical. Our own program, Alert, was removed from CKLN at this time. A year or so later, there was another major change as the group that had kind of pulled off this coup was defeated. What's the situation today, and do you think this is playing a role in the CRTC decision? I, I think um, the situation today is really on the mend. Uh, a lot of the infighting and the uh, the sort of conflict of the station, I, I'm pleased to say, is is put be- has been put behind us. The community uh, listeners, volunteers, and programmers of the station have really come together in an amazing fashion to rebuild and revitalize the station uh, and set it on a road to recovery from the years of conflict of, uh, that you have described. Um, just in terms of the um, the you know the uh, the CRTC's guess, decision yeah the CRTC's decision I I think it's really important to frame this in 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 a broader context many of the issues of the CRTC sites uh, we don't deny that there uh, that there was room for improvement there so they talk about you know the the need to hire staff uh, something that we're working on actively at the moment uh, the hiring process is underway 
and we hope to have a station manager in a, in a few days' time. In fact, uh, they've also cited difficulties with playlists and um, and other issues and instances of non-compliance. Uh, you know, things like profanity on the air and stuff like that. Uh, but a lot of these issues are sort of endemic to smaller radio stations, campus community radio stations that don't quite operate on the same level as um, as you know as a commercial radio station. So a lot of those. Uh, factors, I think, were escalated because of the conflict that, that took place at the station. But um, while we acknowledge that there's work that needs to be done, I think we're also in a really good place insofar as we put a lot of that conflict behind us, and we're all committed to moving forward, and we're taking steps to proactively address the issues that the CRTC brought up in its uh, in its decision as mm-hmm. areas where, where CKLN was deficient. So as a board, we're being very proactive in taking steps to redress these in an act- actively. You, what yeah. do you think lies behind this decision then? If you don't put much stock in the reasons that they've that they've cited, it's not that I don't put stock in them. It's more that I feel that they have to be properly contextualized uh, in terms of of the uh, the nature of, of campus community radio stations. I'm 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 hesitant to speculate as to other reasons because we could get into any number of reasons. Uh, what I do know definitively, though, as I said, is that in the upcoming months, we're really committed to moving forward and rebuilding the station. Um, you know, we do a lot of excellent work. We've done a lot of amazing work and special programming around African Liberation Month and International Women's Day, uh, along with a, a grid that really represents the diversity in a city like Toronto. Uh, in, yeah, so, so we're moving forward um, and, you know, we're looking to, to put the past behind us Tell us about your campaign to save the station and how listeners can become involved should they wish to do so. Sure. So uh, the campaign uh, to save CKLN um, is well underway. Um, Listeners can do a number of things to get involved. We're encouraging everyone to visit the website, www.cklen.fm, that has information on how listeners can contribute and get involved. Uh, There's an online petition that has over 5,000 signatures now, and we encourage listeners to sign on. The link is on the homepage of the CKLN website. Listeners also encourage to write to their uh, local MPs um, and encourage them to make a case for the radio station and for its continual existence. Um, and finally, we're also encouraging listeners to disseminate the word amongst their friends and networks and colleagues um, because campus community radio stations like CKLN fill such a wider role in the community, uh, serving underrepresented populations and providing a niche or a starting point for a number of different artists um, and other, you know, and other people who want to make a sort of who want to, who later on go on go on to achieve commercial success. So, really, it's a it's a it's a vital resource to the community, and you know, listeners can get involved in the ways that I've outlined, you know, a few moments ago. And the Thanks. website to go with that is cklen.fm. Perfect. Thanks for speaking with us today. We're out of time. Uh, but thank you for speaking with us. It's kind Thanks of an interesting lot. issue, and we hope it kind of turns out well. Thanks a lot. We've been speaking with Joita Gupta, a member of CKLN's board, and about their ongoing battle with the CRTC. In our latest issue, Canadian Dimension digs into the dirty deeds of Canadian mining companies in the Global South. In our feature article, Lisa North follows Canadian mining companies across Latin America and discovers a trail of assassinations, beatings, and intimidation of local communities. In Africa, Canadian mining companies are the second most important source of foreign investment, and as Bonnie Campbell explains in her article, 
they're responsible for environmental damage and a flagrant disregard for national and local regulations. Rights Action's Graham Russell takes us to Honduras, where Canadian diplomats meet with military coup leaders to protect Canadian mining investments at the expense of local communities. Finally, two of our writers look at the snake oil myth of corporate social responsibility in the mining sector and conservative efforts to block victims of mining abuses from seeking justice in Canadian courts. Pick up our latest issue on newsstands today or visit CanadianDimension.com to order a subscription. The G20 nations meet in Paris next week to try once again to patch up a global economy that is torn by division, currency wars, massive imbalances, and still uneven progress coming out of the economic crisis of 2008-2009. To help us sort through the issues, Alert has contacted John Loxley, University of Manitoba economics professor and noted authority on global economics. So thanks for joining us, John Loxley. My pleasure. Professor Loxley, in your opinion, what were the main factors contributing to the economic downturn, and how are the G20 countries positioned to address them? The main factors were, uh, I think, you have to go back some time to look at how the global system has been very unstable for many, many years, and uh, the successive ways in which the major powers have sought to keep the economy going. And... um, most recently, this has taken the form of financialization and pumping credit into the system to keep up the levels of consumption, the levels of demand, and the levels of profit. And this was done in a way that um, was quite um, irresponsible, given the, the basis on which it was formed, which was speculative financial transactions. Uh, most recently, the... Uh, mortgage market in the U.S., which was completely hyperventilating and uh, driven by credit. And, of course, once that stops growing in terms of speculation and pricing, as it did for the first time in 30 years, then people holding the debt are left with a problem. And in this case, it was the the mortgagees, the, uh, the people who took out the mortgages who were left holding the problem, and the banks, of course, were bailed out by the state, and uh, the debt was to some degree socialized. So are the G20 then, I mean, have they uh, learned their lesson? What are they doing to, to address that uh, those factors that you mentioned, financialization and such? Well, there's a number of things that they're, they're trying to do, I suppose. I mean, the, the problem is that... Uh, as has always been the case, the rate at which different countries grow and adjust under the, the, the world capitalist system is very uneven. So you have some countries that were left in very dire straits, uh, debt-wise, and uh, others which are uh, feverishly trying to find a way out of the crisis, uh, torn between expanding government spending, since... Uh, the credit is not working, but expanding government credit, sorry, government spending, and uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, meeting uh, opposition which wants government spending cut back, classically uh, the Tea Party in the States. But So we're left with a situation in which some countries are in dire straits, and uh, these we know, it's uh, Iceland and Ireland and Greece, with Spain and Portugal teetering on the brink. I mean, Spain has got a 20% unemployment rate. 
and zero growth. Um, and then you've got other countries, uh, North America and parts of Europe, which are growing modestly at this point in time. Uh, the, the United Kingdom, which has had some of the most severe cutbacks in their bid to balance the budget, is, is experiencing negative growth, which is, I think, a warning to to everybody in the, in the sense that uh, there are no quick and easy solutions, and the quick and easy solutions that are being pushed by the right are very costly in terms of uh, unemployment for workers and incomes for workers. So, so I, think, I think the whole global economy is quite fragile, and this comes after... Some years of growing income inequality where real wages in many countries uh, did not increase. And so, you know, you're then faced with um, some very difficult choices politically. Now, what if we just focus on the, the major players here? I mean, you have the uh, the United States and their policy of uh, what they call quantitative easing. Yes. And uh, you also have China, which uh, is... Uh, Manipulating the balance, the value of its currency. So, you know, with with those two elements and the United States blaming its trade deficit on China, and uh, also the uh, the Chinese and other economies being critical of the U.S. Poli- the QE policy. Yeah, I mean, h- how is that unfolding, and and what are well, we going I mean, to see? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the you see, the chi- China would accuse the U.S. of manipulating its currency because what quantitative easing does is it uh, pushes more credit into the system and uh, reduces the value of the U.S. dollar, which makes the U.S. more competitive. Uh, What the U.S. would like to see is they'd like to see China raise its exchange rate, which would have the same effect. Uh, There's a number of... What is interesting about the G20 is that the rules of the game have changed a bit. I mean, it's not the G8. The G20 is not the G8. There are several members of the... G20, who object quite strongly to the U.S. lowering and keeping interest rates low and easing its credit in the way that you've described, because what happens is that capital then leaves the U.S. and goes to places that are growing more rapidly and offering higher rates of return. And these, of course, are countries like Brazil and Indonesia and Korea. And... um, they have reacted by actually uh, imposing controls on capital coming in. So, yeah, you, you've got this, this huge problem of, of managing the global economy in which people's uh, countries' interests uh, are quite different. At least the interests of capital in these countries is um, often quite different. So, you know, they will go into uh, the negotiations in France this year uh, trying to resolve that. Now, uh, what about the whole concept of, of currency wars? I mean, I, I think you know that there are other – all I mean, with the United States manipulating its currency, uh, do we see this the larger impact on that and, and the way other countries are, are also trying to, to move in to adapt? Well, there is, there is this speculation that we're into an era of currency wars. We're also into – you know, which are very similar, and part of it is uh, growing, growing uh, intervention, in both in trade and in, uh, as I mentioned, in foreign capital flows. And you you get these kinds of reactions when gross imbalances uh, get bigger. Um, whether or not we're into currency wars, it's probably a bit too early to to say. That. And that's the point we're at. I mean, the 
the friction between the U.S. and China has been there for several years. And um, what we're seeing is, is growing friction because uh, Europe itself has been under some stress. So the, the euro and, and the United Kingdom pound have also come under pressure. Um, so it looks as if, you know, there are kind of competitive devaluations going on. Um, the, the question is, to what extent are these influenced by government policy, or is this the, you know, private capital uh, moving money around? And it's, it's hard to tell at this stage. I'm not convinced yet that this will be all-out currency war, but there's definitely a lot of friction, and... This is being met by governments bringing in restrictions on trade and capital flows. Now, there, there is, uh, we hear talk about the idea of countries, uh, particularly China, which has a huge uh, chunk of uh, U.S. Treasure, treasury debt. I mean, if countries like China start dumping the U.S. dollar as the global currency, you know, what, what in real terms does that mean for uh, the global economy? Well, there was talk. There's been talk about that for a while as well. You know that countries would move into what? This is a question. Uh, you know, you go around the world, and the U.S. dollar is still the currency people want. You know, they don't want Canadian dollars; they want U.S. dollars. Um, moving into the euro looks a lot less attractive now than it did two years ago. So there's an issue there of of uh, where you know what currencies do you park your your capital in? And um, it's not altogether clear to me that there's been a huge flight from the dollar at this stage or that there will be. Mm. They, ironically, when, when crises arise, usually it's the dollar uh, appreciates uh, when global crises arise. At this stage, you know, there are signs that that is not happening and that um, the dollar has weakened, and that's government policy. Uh, the price of gold has gone up, which is always a good sign that things are not going right. Uh, economically, so it it remains to be seen, you know, whether China wants to get out of. I think China would like to continue things more or less the way they are, well, and they're making marginal changes to their uh, currency. But generally, they've got they've got a an arrangement that, from their point of view, works for them. Now that is under pressure. It's under pressure from within because workers are demanding higher wages. Okay. But of course, if that becomes a huge uh, occurrence um, that will put further pressure on on their ability to um, to export. So I think there there are changes taking place anyway from within, regardless of what's happening to the exchange rate. Uh, okay, so if I could just maybe conclude with a, a final thought, uh, Professor Loxley, do you anticipate uh, another crash in 2011? And uh, what are the uh, thoughts about the uh, coming from the G20 countries in that regard? I I don't anticipate another crash. Um, there are some obvious areas of of weakness uh, where you know from which such a crash might occur. I mean, the mortgage market is certainly uh, far from being uh, stabilized, uh, and that's the same applies to to Canada. Uh, if there are global currency wars, that will also um, precipitate uh, major problems. I don't. I don't think that's going to happen just yet. I think that um, they, there is a very fragile recovery which uh, will muddle through for the rest of the year. I mean, there, there will still be major issues on the G20 agenda 
in spite of that, I mean, there's the whole issue of whether or not to impose a financial transactions tax, which France and some of the G20 countries are pushing for, and which the U.S. and Canada is opposing. But that might go through in some form or another, more limited form. Uh, and I, I think that uh, the threat of a crisis uh, usually brings more cooperation than uh, is normal. So if it looks like there's going to be another meltdown, I wouldn't be at all surprised to uh, see some patching up going on. The question is, how long can this patching up go on? You know, the system has been creaky and, uh, you know, unstable for many, many years now. Well, uh, Professor Loxley, uh, we'll just have to uh, watch and, and see how this story develops. So thank you very much for sharing your perspectives with Alert. Thanks, Mike. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. And that was Professor John Loxley speaking to us uh, on uh, in the lead-up to the G20 summit in Paris. And this week's show features nothing but Canadian folk musicians singing some of the great old songs of the folk music world. And here to start is Calgary's Tim Williams with what I think is a brilliant version of Woody Guthrie's Plain Wreck at Los Gatos. Well, the crops are all in and the peaches are rotten The oranges are piled in their creosote dumps They're taking them back to the Mexican border To take all their money to wade back again My father's own father, he waded the great river. They took all the money he made in his life. My brothers and sisters, from working in your fields, they rode on the trucks till they took them and died. Goodbye to my one Farewell, Rosalita Adios, mis amigos Jesusi Maria You won't have a name When you ride the big airplane All it will call you will be Deportee Some of us ain't wanted And some of us ain't legal But the work contract's up And we got to move on 600 miles to the Mexican border But they treat us like outlaws Like rustlers, like thieves
Oh, the sky plane went down over Los Gatos Canyon. A big ball of fire that shook all the trees. Tell me who are these friends who are scattered like dry leaves? The radio said, well, they're just deportees. Goodbye to my one Fairly well, Rosalita Adios, mis amigos Hey, Susie, Maria You won't have a name When you ride the big airplane All they will call you will be Deportee All they will call you will be deportee. Turn over, we're gonna try 
Coming up next is the McGarrigal Sisters and a beautiful, beautiful recording of Wade Hemsworth classical song, classic song, The Wild Goose.
spent it in good company. And all the harm that I've done, alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit to memory now I can't recall. So Jenny's with the classic Irish song, The Parton Glass. And before that, Wade Hemsworth, The Wild Goose, sung by the McGarrigal Sisters. I was digging through my record collection, and I came across a beautiful old CD that I've had for a while. It's a, it's a recording by Mary Jane and Winston Young, who, in the early 60s, were kind of the leading act of the Toronto folk music scene. Uh, sometimes they sang on tune, sometimes they didn't. But they absolutely were, I used to follow them around Toronto all the time as a kid and, and listen to the songs because they sang the most interesting songs. And here's a song that I want to send out, if it may be sent out to somebody, to Jack Layton. I think this is a perfect song that he should pay very close attention to. It's not about the NDP, but it is about the British Labour Party, and it is from about 50 years ago. But somehow, I think the message is appropriate. So here is the Battle Hymn of the New Socialist. The clock cap and the working class As images are dated And we are labor's avant-garde And we were educated We feel we ought to drop clause four To make the public love us more and just to show we're still sincere We'll sing the red flag once a year Firm principles and policies Are open to objections And the streamlined party images The way to win elections So raise the umbrella high The bowler hat and eat and tie 
We'll stand united, raise a cheer, and sing the red flag once a year. Although we may be socialists, we're too discreet to stress it. And nationalization is a flop, so let's confess it. We'll reform the country bit by bit, so nobody will notice it. Then ever after, never fear, we'll sing the red flag once a year. We shall not cease the mental fight till every wrong is righted. And all men are equal quite, and all our leaders knighted. For we are sure if we persist to make the New Year's honors list. Then every loyal labor peer will sing the red flag once a year. So vote for us and not for them. We're just as true to NATO. We're just as calm and British when we steer the ship of Stato. We will stand as firm as them, patriotic gentlemen. Though cowards flinch and traitors sneer, we'll, we'll sing, sing the red flag once a year. Kitchens, a thousand mil off Scarea, touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses. For the people here are singing bread and roses, bread and roses. We come marching, marching, unnumbered women dead. Rising through our singing, their ancient cry for bread. Art, love, and beauty, their judging spirits new. Yes, it is bread we find for, but we find. For our children, our sisters, and for men, our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. 
heart starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. As we come marching, marching, we're standing proud and tall. The rising of the women means the rising of us all. No more drudge and idler. And the toil where one reposes, but a sharing of life's glories, bread and roses, bread and Teresa Healy with a really interesting version of Bread and Roses and before that Mary Jane and Winston Young with an amazing recording of the Battle Hymn of the New Socialists. That's it for this week folks. We'll see you next week. Have a good week. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. up the latest issue of Canadian Dimension magazine today and discover how Canadian mining companies are behind serious human rights abuses and environmental destruction from the Congo to Ecuador. You can visit CanadianDimension.com to read some of these featured articles, check out our latest blogs, or order a subscription to Canadian Dimension. The Canadian Dimension special mining issue is on newsstands and in bookstores now. Thank you.